The scripture reading for this morning is from John 2, 13 through 22. Please open your Bibles to John 2, 13, 22. If you're using the Pew Bible, the page number is 72 in the New Testament. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins from the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. What a glorious, what a glorious song. Um, yet not I, but Christ in me. I think the longer I'm walking with the Lord, the more I appreciate what is the hope of glory, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And, uh, my hope of glory is not me. It's not my faithfulness, and it's not how good I am or what I do. It's just Christ. And, um, just Him. I don't want it any other way. Do you pray with me as we begin and get into God's Word this morning? Father, we come before you, Lord, as your people, acknowledging that it is not in us. It's not in us to come before you. Lord. It's not because of us. It's not due to our own goodness or any thought of being a good person. Lord, if we come before you in the, in the name of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we come in his name alone. Lord, and we pray, not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Father, we pray that you would be glorified here this morning. Why else would we come and gather here, Lord, but to draw near to you 
and to know more deeply and more intimately the glory of you drawing near to us. So not the glory that we see in Christ, your only begotten Son, uniting himself to us and drawing near so that he might bring us with him to glory. Lord, help us see that this morning. Help us by your spirit. Lord, may we be strengthened in our inner beings so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And that we, being rooted and grounded in love, might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord, if being filled with all the fullness of God is being filled with the knowledge of your unknowable love, then Lord, we want to be filled to the brim and overflowing. So help us know your love. Let Christ dwell in our hearts this morning. Father, may your word minister to us where we are. Get glory for your name. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing to look at this scene in John chapter 2, which takes place at the temple in Jerusalem near the time of the Passover. Learn that from John 2.13. Really, there are two main sections to this account of uh, this interaction between Jesus and the Jews in the temple. Last week, we looked at verses 13 through 17, which is kind of the first main section here where we're focusing on Jesus or we're being uh, told about Jesus cleansing the temple. That in holy zeal for his father, he made a whip of cords, a scourge, of cords, and he drove out the oxen and the sheep and the sellers, and he poured out money bags and overturned tables and declared to them, stop making my father's house a place of business. Stop making it a marketplace. We saw last week, basically, Jesus here is fulfilling what was prophesied about him in Malachi chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, that the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. And he will purify the sons of Levi like silver being purified by fire, refined in the fires. And then they will offer sacrifices in righteousness to the Lord, and they will be acceptable to him. That's what Jesus is doing. He's purifying his people in their worship at the temple so that they would offer acceptable worship unto the Lord. Now today we're looking at the second section of this account of Jesus cleansing the temple, which is where Jesus gives us one of the most astounding revelations about himself. Here he reveals that his purpose in coming to this world was not merely to clean up the old covenant temple. It was not merely to revive old covenant worship. It was not merely to reinstitute with new vigor in life what had been laid down as rules and rituals for worship in the Old Covenant. No, actually, 
Jesus came to raise up, in place of the old covenant temple, the new covenant temple, filled with new covenant people and new covenant worshipers. So here he reveals not only that he did not only come to clean up the old covenant temple, but actually he came to raise up the new covenant temple in its place. That's what we find here in verses 18 through 22. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Those of you who are taking notes, if you want to know, uh, three main points for today. The first point is demanding from Jesus a sign, demanding a sign. Second point is Jesus giving a sign, Jesus gives a sign. And then the last point is the significance of this sign. That's where we're going. Now this revelation of Jesus raising up the new covenant temple in place of the old is given uh, or is made known to us through the giving of a sign. When Jesus cleared out all the business and the noise from the temple, he struck a nerve with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Now, as he sought to restore proper reverence for the house of his father, Jesus was, in effect, directly challenging the authority of these religious leaders who had instituted the kind of worship that was taking place in the temple. And so in response to Jesus and in their offense over what he had done, they come to Jesus in verse 18 and they uh, demand from him a sign. Verse 18 tells us that it was a sign in order to prove the authority by which he was doing these things. Now, seeking after a sign was not necessarily an unusual thing for someone uh, who was called to be a prophet of the Lord. Often when the Lord would send his prophets among his people, he would give them signs to perform in the presence of his people to signify that they truly had been commissioned and sent by Yahweh. So, for example, you remember Moses. When Moses was sent by the Lord to Egypt to get the people of God out of the land of Egypt, Moses said in Exodus chapter 4, verse 1, What if they will not believe me? What if they won't listen to my voice? For they may say, Yahweh hasn't appeared to you. They might not believe me whenever I tell them that Yahweh has appeared to me. But what did God do in response to that request from Moses? He gave Moses three signs to perform to the people. He gave, them, he gave him the staff turning into a snake. He gave them leprosy breaking out on his hand and being healed by putting it into his coat. And then he gave him the sign of turning water from the Nile into blood. Now all of these, the giving of these signs was not merely a demonstration of the people's ignorance and stubbornness in their sin. It was, it was simply a, a, a demonstration of God's great love for his people and his desire that his people would become convinced of the truth and believe in him. So the Lord gave these signs to Moses, not only to prove that he had appeared to Moses, but to prove that Yahweh truly had sent him. You know, in fact, Jesus says the same thing about the signs that he performed in the Gospel of John. In John 10, verse 37 through 38, he says, If I do not do the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works. So here, with Jesus and Moses and other prophets, we find that there's nothing inherently wrong with looking for signs that will prove that someone truly is a messenger of Yahweh. However, the Jews here in John 2 were not so noble in their demand for Jesus to show them a sign. 
In fact, the question that's been running through my mind as I've been working through this passage is, did they really need a sign from Jesus in order to prove the rightness of what he had done? See, for someone with a righteous and pure heart who held fast to Yahweh in faith and who in love for Yahweh was filled with the knowledge of his word, for that person, that person would not have needed a sign to be performed to show that what Jesus had done in the temple was the right thing to do. But in demanding this sign, these religious leaders were actually demonstrating the depth of their hardness of heart and their spiritual blindness. Now understand, their demand for a sign from Jesus was not really about wanting Jesus to prove his authority to them. That was the surface excuse for it, but that is not really what they were after in calling Jesus to perform a sign. What they were doing was committing an act of deflection. They were trying to bend the focus away from the merits of Jesus' actions in comparison to the merits of their own actions. Because what Jesus had done condemned what they had approved of. They weren't coming to Jesus truly seeking after whether or not he was sent from the Lord. They were coming to Jesus trying to divert the debate away from the issue that Jesus had exposed. They were committing an act of deflection. Now this is simply fallen human nature. You and I do this all the time. Right? This is what we have inherited from Adam and Eve in their fallen sin, what do we find them doing immediately after that fall? When God comes to them, when the Lord comes to them and confronts them in their sin, what do they do? They immediately begin, what's that? Well, they did. Yeah, they did hide. Yeah, that's right. But when they were exposed before the Lord and their nakedness was made known, and the Lord began to convict or confront them in light of that, the first thing they started to do was deflect. God comes to Adam and says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I told you not to eat? Adam says, well, well, yeah, but it was the woman who made me do it. And, and by the way, you're the one that gave me that woman. So actually, it's your fault that I ate from the tree. And God comes to the woman and says, did you eat from that tree? Well, well yeah, I ate from the tree and I gave it to Adam. But it was actually the serpent who deceived me. And then I ate. And so it actually wasn't my fault. It was the serpent's fault. See, this is just human nature. When we are exposed in our sinfulness and in our guilt, the sinful human being will do everything that he or she can to deflect, to get a runaround, to skate around the issue so that they're not hammered and pinned down by the reality of their situation. What did you say, Ejer? Blame it on someone else. That's right. Or something else, right? Always an excuse. That's what these Jews were doing. They were trying to skate around the real issue that Jesus had just exposed in cleansing the temple. And you know, if you know enough about your own sinful nature, you know that we only begin to engage in deflection when we know that we are in the wrong. There's not a single time when you and I have been in the right where we have tried to deflect that attention away onto someone else or something else. No, it's only when we're wrong that we, defend, that we begin to divert the attention away from what we've done. Now, I think on some level, these Jews knew that what Jesus had done was right. 
and they knew that they could not win an argument with him by debating the merits of what they were doing against the merits of what Jesus had done. So what do they do? They change the nature of the debate. They try and change the issue at hand. Basically, they were saying, Jesus, if you can prove that you have a right to do this, then maybe we will listen to you. It's like C.S. Lewis's little essay, God in the Dock. Any of you guys ever read that? It's a wonderful, short little write-up about engaging with modern man, with the faith of Christianity. In that little essay, he says, man always seeks to be judge and tries to put God in the dock. That is, tries to put God on trial. And if God can give a reasonable defense for who he is and what he demands of us, then man graciously is ready to listen to him. But only if God can prove a reasonable defense to our judgment. That's what's happening here in John 2. God is being put on trial in man's courtroom. The Son of God is being subjected to the prideful scrutiny of human rationality. And he will only earn a hearing with them if he gains their approval first. Now, it may manifest differently in different people's lives, but oh, how many people are just like this. We'll gladly receive God. We will joyfully do what He says and we will bow the knee to Christ so long as it is on our own terms or at least is in agreement with our terms. So long as God does not challenge or disrupt our understanding of what He deserves from us, then we are very happy to comply. But God doesn't comply with that. He demands allegiance and He demands submission to His terms not on the basis of our own. Very often we find ourselves wanting to play the part of the judge, waiting for God to impress us enough with his reasons for obedience that will then motivate us to let him out of the dock, let him out of our trial. Well, this is what the Jews were doing with Jesus. Now, what's shocking to me, and really just is an amazing demonstration of Christ's patience with them, is that Jesus actually does give these Jews a sign. Here they are, pridefully, scornfully coming to Jesus, saying, Jesus, you prove to us who you are, and then we will decide whether or not you're worth listening to. Okay? Does that sound good to you? Show us your credentials, Jesus, and then we'll determine whether those credentials are good enough for us to... Listen to what you have to say. The king of glory being humbled, right? The humility of the Messiah. Now here, amazingly, in response to that, we find Jesus actually giving them a sign. What I would want to do if I were Jesus in that moment was to, would be to keep my mouth shut. And just knowing the end, knowing their end and what would come upon them eventually, just keep my mouth shut. Let them keep going their way. They'll find out eventually. But that's graciously and thankfully, that's not Jesus. That's not how Jesus acts and responds to us. Jesus actually gives them a sign. They wanted Jesus to bow to their demands and to work a miracle right then and there. But Jesus points them to the ultimate sign 
that proves his authority for doing these things. Verse 18, they say, show us a sign to prove that you have authority to do this. Jesus answers them in verse 19 and says, here's your sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. There's your sign. Now the Jews were obviously confused by what Jesus was saying. And let's be honest, they were confused with good reason. They thought that he was talking about the physical temple building that they were standing in. They were in the midst of the temple. And Jesus uses this word that in their context only meant, only meant one thing. The physical building where God dwelt among his people in the city of Jerusalem. So when they heard Jesus say, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, automatically their minds are going to this physical temple in front of them. You see that in verse 20. The Jews mockingly say back to Jesus in response, it took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? Clearly to them, that sounds insane. For 46 years, this temple known as the Herodian temple, for 46 years, it had undergone renovations, being updated. And the work actually was going to continue on for another 36 years, until, 63, until AD 63, when it would finally be finished. And then you know the story of seven years later, God wipes that temple off of its foundation. Just a lot of symbolism there, right? With the, the gospel being spread, the new covenant temple being established in Jesus, and God removes the old covenant temple against the will of the Jews. We're going to get to that in a minute. I jumped ahead of myself. But... A lot of symbolism there. For 46 years, this temple had undergone renovations. In fact, we can even see some of the foundation stones that were laid during this time for the expansion that was added on to the temple complex. And these stones are like the size of a school bus. They're huge. This was a massive feat of engineering. In fact, I, I can't remember where I read this, and, I, and I'm actually struggling to remember the exact number, but there was something like 15,000 or 18,000 full-time workers employed throughout the entire time of temple renova renovations. You're talking about a lot of people that are working on this temple for that many years. So from their understanding, what Jesus said to them would seem entirely incredible, absolutely unbelievable. But here's the kicker. Here's where the shift takes place. In John 2.21, Jesus says, or it says that Jesus was not speaking about the physical temple. It says that he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, verse 22 acknowledges that this is not something that anyone else understood. In fact, his own disciples didn't even understand what he was saying until after his resurrection from the dead. They didn't realize that he was talking about the temple of his body. Now, we're going to get to the significance of Jesus equating the temple with himself in just a minute. But I want you to realize what Jesus is saying here. He declares that this is the only sign that he was going to give the Jews in order to prove his authority to dictate their worship. He says, destroy this temple. That is, in light of what we know in verse 21 and 22, put me to death. 
And after you have sought with all your might to destroy me, the living temple, the God-man, God living and dwelling among you in your presence, after you have sought with all your might to destroy me, once you have given full vent to your hatred of God and holiness and true worship, I will prove to you that I have the authority to do these things by rising up as as victor over all of it. Jesus says, I will show you my authority to do this by raising up what you attempt to destroy. I will rebuild this temple that you will attempt to tear down, and then you will know my authority. Now, what's that talking about? Obviously, we're talking about Jesus' resurrection. That's what he's saying to them. See, the only proof of Jesus' authority that he will give to the skeptic and the doubter is his resurrection from the dead. This is the greatest sign of Christ's authority and it's the only sign that will be given to the world of sinners until the day when Jesus descends from heaven in glory to judge the world. How do we know that Jesus has authority to make the claims he made? How do we know that Jesus has the right to command my allegiance? How do we know that what Jesus said was actually true in regard to God and holiness and judgment and sin? How do we know it's true when Jesus says on the last day, He will be the one to cause all the dead to rise and they will stand before Him for judgment? How do we know that any of that is true? Jesus says, the only sign I'm giving to the world to know that that's true is my resurrection from the dead. That what they sought to destroy, I will raise up eternally. It's what Jesus says in Luke eleven twenty nine. He says, it is a wicked and evil generation that seeks for a sign. Right? It's a wicked and evil generation that seeks to put him in the dock. To judge him by their own standards to evaluate his claims upon their understanding of truth. Jesus says that's an evil and a wicked generation that does that. The wicked generation seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Is that? Three days, three nights in the belly of a fish, and then being vomited up on the shoreline toward Nineveh, Becoming a type of the resurrection itself, right? The fact that God preserved Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights was a miracle. In fact, the language that Jonah uses in Jonah chapter 2 is the language of having died. And then the Lord bringing him up from death. Now that, that served as a sign to the people of Nineveh that Jonah was actually an anointed prophet from Yahweh and that all of Nineveh was bound to listen to the message he had come to proclaim in Yahweh's name. Well, even so, Jesus says, it's the same with the Son of Man. His resurrection from the dead is the only proof of his authority that he offers to an unbelieving, skeptical, doubting world. So the proof that Jesus had authority to cleanse the temple over and against the religious authorities of that day came three years later 
when after they had exhausted themselves and pouring out the fullness of their evil intentions upon him, he arose from the grave as the victor, the conqueror of death and sin. Jesus tells them here in John 2, this is all the proof of my authority that you're going to get. Do your worst to me, and I will still be standing at the end of it. Now, for the rest of our time this morning, what I want to do is look at a number of things relating to the significance of this sign. The sign that Jesus is offering is his resurrection. And there's a connection that Jesus makes here between himself and the temple. Why is that so significant? And what does that mean for us? Why is it so important for us to know these things? Basically, I want to take this in two directions. So we'll run one path as long as time permits or as long as I feel like it's a good path to run. And then we're going to skip over to another path. And we'll run that one until you guys get up and leave or I'm done. <laughs> so the first one is going to be focusing on the true nature of the temple. What does this sign of Jesus prove about the true nature of the temple. And then the second thing we're going to jump to is what this sign teaches us about the nature of Christ. What this sign teaches us about the nature of Christ. So first of all, the nature of the temple. Don't miss this, that in John 2.19, Jesus describes his death at the hands of the Jews as the destruction of a temple. And he identifies his resurrection from the dead as the raising up or the rebuilding of this temple. What does that signify to us? Well, as I said, the first thing we want to look at is the true nature of the temple. And there are three things under this heading, true nature of the temple, I want to point out. Number one. Concerning the true nature of the temple, this sign tells us Listen carefully. This sign tells us that it was never ultimately about the Old Covenant temple. The Old Covenant temple was merely a shadow of what would take place in the New Covenant under the Messiah. That's number one. What Jesus says here in John 2.19 tells us that it was never ultimately about the Old Covenant temple. But the Old Covenant temple was a shadow pointing to Christ. <clears throat> Jesus says this very same thing in Matthew 12.6. When referring to himself, he says to the Jews, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is greater than the temple in the same way that a person is greater than his or her shadow. When you're walking down the street and the sun is shining behind you and you're coming around a corner, I will see your shadow on the ground before I see you. Right? That is the relationship between the Old Covenant temple and its fulfillment in Jesus. The Old Covenant temple was the shadow that was signaling the coming of something greater. It was the place of worship for God's people. It was the place where atonement for sin was made. It was the place where reconciliation took place between the Lord and His people. It was the place where the people of God came to fellowship and worship Him. 
All of that was pointing towards something greater that was coming after it. And Jesus says, that something greater is me. In other words, the physical temple in earthly Jerusalem was never an end in itself. It was not the ultimate goal and the plan of God to dwell with his people in an earthly temple in a geographical location called Jerusalem. The earthly temple made with hands was nothing more than a shadow of the heavenly temple that's made without hands. Isn't that what God told Moses on the mountain? See to it that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you? This is the whole message of the book of Hebrews. That's why it's one of my favorite books. Because what it tells us is that everything in the old covenant worship of the old covenant people of God was merely a shadow and a copy of the true heavenly worship that takes place between God and His people. It was just a shadow. It was a temporary, the old covenant temple was a temporary dwelling place for the special presence of God on earth that served as a copy and a shadow of God's eternal dwelling place in heaven. And when Jesus stands before that old covenant temple and takes that word temple and applies it to himself, what he is doing is replacing himself with the temple. Excuse me, replacing the temple with himself. He is replacing that old covenant temple with him when he takes that word and says, this is me. When he applies that word temple to himself, he states that everything in the old covenant temple has found its fulfillment in him, in the one who is the greater than that temple. Which leads to a second point. So point number one is that it was never ultimately about the old covenant temple. The old covenant temple was a shadow pointing to the new covenant temple. Number two, the old covenant temple has been made obsolete by Christ's resurrection. Because Christ is the fulfillment of the temple and he has been eternally raised from the dead, there will be no going back to the old covenant form of the temple. Not according to the good pleasure and will of God, anyway. Wasn't this proven by or at Christ's resurrection, or, man, wasn't this proven at Christ's crucifixion? It was proven at his resurrection, but wasn't this proven at his crucifixion? Mark 15, 37 through 38, it says that when Jesus had breathed his last, the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. What did that signify? What did the, the rending of the veil say? What was the veil there for? It was a barrier of holiness, wasn't it? It was a barrier that kept people from entering into the special presence of God that dwelt within the Holy of Holies. When Jesus dies on the cross, that veil is rent in two. And that is God declaring to the Jews and to all the world that Ichabod is rightly written over the top of this inner sanctuary. That he is no longer dwelling in that place, but his eternal dwelling place is in the new covenant temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
or it was proven even in A.D. 70 that God's not going to be going back to the old covenant form of worship ever. That was proven in A.D. 70 when God used the Romans to completely destroy the physical temple in Jerusalem. This is just what Jesus said would happen in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 2. As Jesus' disciples came out of the temple, they were looking and gawking at all the wondrous stones and the, and the, the marvelous works that, that were part of the temple. And they came to Jesus and they said, wow, Lord, look at these stones of the temple. And Jesus says, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another that will not be torn down. What is the destruction of the temple other than God's testimony to the Jewish people and to the entire world that the time for the old covenant form of temple had reached its fulfillment? It had come to its end. And because Christ, the God-man, has come, the old covenant form of worship is no longer needed. The dwelling place of God with men is no longer located in a physical building. It is no longer centered in one specific geographical location. That's the message of John 4, and we're going to get to that. The dwelling place of God with man is now and forever will be centered in a person. The union of God and man in the man, Christ Jesus the eternal word who became flesh and dwelt among us, the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That is the fulfillment of the old covenant temple shadow. And since the fulfillment of the Old Testament shadow has come, God does not have a plan to return to that shadow in the future. Just think about what it would mean if God had a holy purpose to reinstitute the temple in all of its forms of worship, what would that be saying about what was fulfilled in Jesus? Do you really think that God is going to desecrate the glory of his son by instituting a new old covenant form of the temple? Just think about what you're saying if you think that that's God's will for this world. That is not God's will for this world. And you see that at the end of Revelation. There's only one temple that descends from heaven, and that is Christ with His people. We're not, listen, my point here, you can, we can talk about this more after the sermon. I'm sure I'm going to get some responses on this. And that's fine. I don't, want, I don't want to discourage that. I don't mean to discourage that at all. I, I love talking about these things. But what you're saying, if you think that there's still some future plan of God that relates to a physical temple being rebuilt in physical Jerusalem, what you're saying there is that the glory of what God has done and is doing in Christ is not enough. That there's something still left over in the old covenant that needs to be resurrected. Jesus came and said the old covenant is gone. I have established a new covenant in my blood and it's proven by my resurrection from the dead. He is the new covenant temple. And God has no plans to back away from his full investment in that new covenant temple in order to see an old covenant form of the temple reestablished. Now, if that happens to come about, so be it. 
But it's not because God wants it to happen. Can I say that? It's not because God is approving of the worship that will take place there. So that's point number two. Under this, so really this is point B, under point one, under significance of this sign. The old covenant temple was merely a shadow. That's point one. The old covenant temple has been made obsolete by Christ's resurrection from the dead. That's point two. Point number three, or C, Jesus' resurrection and his working, or excuse me, and his work of building his church is the rebuilt temple that the prophets prophesied about. Read that again. Jesus, in his resurrection, and his work of building his church, that is the rebuilt temple that the prophets prophesied about in the Old Testament. Zechariah 6, verse 12. It says that when the Messiah comes, he will build the temple of the Lord. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the Messiah. We're talking about Christ. You can go compare that with Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, the branch of David. Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Now, there's a connection here between branching out from where he is and building the temple of the Lord. You really need to see that. That's important. It, 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 I don't have time to get into all of it, but it has a connection with the Spirit being sent to build up the church of Jesus Christ across the globe. He will branch out from where he is. He will build the temple of the Lord. However, my point here is simply to say that the prophets prophesied that when the Messiah came, he would build the temple of the Lord. And that is what Jesus, the branch, came to do. He came to build the temple of the Lord. And what was the temple according to Jesus? It was himself. It was his people. But it was him. That was begun, that building of the temple that Zechariah 6.12 is talking about, that was begun in Jesus' incarnation, right? That's John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, dwelling, that tabernacling among us. But that is also what Jesus is talking about here in John 2.19, saying that the, the, the firm establishment of that temple that he came to build as Messiah took place in his resurrection from the dead. Amos 9.11, it says that the building of the temple will happen when God raises up the fallen booth of David and walls up its breaches and raises up its ruins and rebuilds it as in the days of old and then gathers all the nations who are called by his name. That's Amos 9.11. When the Messiah would come, in other words, God would raise all these things up. He would restore what had been torn down. And what is absolutely amazing to me is that when you read in the book of Acts, you find that the apostles declared that passage to be now fulfilled in Jesus and in his work of building up the church. Acts 15, 16, Jesus, or James, 
pointing to these verses, says that Christ is currently fulfilling this prophecy right now. As he gathers Jews and Gentiles into his church through his resurrection power in the preaching of the gospel. That he is raising up the fallen booth of David. He's sealing up his breaches, its breaches. He's raising up its ruins. He's rebuilding it as in days of old. So according to the apostles, in other words, the Messiah is even now displaying the glory of his temple that he has raised up as he accomplishes the work of joining sinners, redeemed sinners, to his new covenant people. This is why the church is called the temple of God in the New Testament. Right? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, language of temple. Ephesians chapter 2, we are the dwelling of the Lord by the Spirit. The church of Jesus Christ is his temple because it is his body where God dwells. Christ and his church, in other words, is the greater and more glorious temple that was prophesied about in Haggai chapter 2, verse 9. When Haggai prophesied that the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let me ask you a question. Where does God give peace to the sinner? Thank you. Amen. Where does God give peace to the sinner? He gives peace to the sinner in Christ. Christ is the new covenant temple that exceeds the glory of the old. And in these latter days, he is currently building that temple up. See, we could go on. This glory of the new covenant temple will finally and fully reach its consummation when? At the end of days, when Jesus returns and unites his people fully to the glory he has attained for them. When we, when we in our weak bodies are finally made to conform to the body of his glory, when we see him as he is, see him face to face, that is when this work of building up the temple will reach its consummation. But that's not when the work of Christ building up the temple will be inaugurated. That happened in his death, burial, and resurrection. Despite all the confusion, here's just a little snippet here. Despite all the confusion and speculation about Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 and what that's talking about, despite all the confusion about what that's saying, the temple that Ezekiel was prophesying about is the same temple Jesus is talking about in John 2. It's a temple, grand and glorious, that continues to expand and cover the earth through the preaching of the gospel. And you can see that most clearly if you take the language of Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 and compare that to the language of Revelation 21 and 22. You find that the fulfillment of those passages in Ezekiel happens in the new heaven and new earth. So I just want to throw that out there, guys. This is really important to have our theology set in order, right? The Old Covenant temple was merely a shadow of the substance that belongs to Christ. And in Christ, every aspect of having a relationship with God that was pictured beforehand in the temple now finds its fulfillment, finds it in Him. So that's what this sign in John 2 teaches us about the nature of the temple. The dwelling place of God 
with man, where man comes to worship God, is no longer the old covenant form. It is now the new covenant temple in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So that is the nature of the old covenant temple. So now the second point, main point under the significance. What does this sign teach us about the nature of Jesus? What does this sign teach us about the nature of Jesus? I've got two thoughts here. Number one, point A, I need to do that, A. This sign teaches us that Jesus Christ is greater than our greatest efforts to destroy him. What does this sign teach us about Jesus? It teaches us that Jesus Christ is greater than our greatest efforts to destroy him. He says in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. You know, the opening words of that statement is actually, it's actually a command. Now how you interpret that command is a different question, but what Jesus is doing here is he is challenging these Jews in their stubbornness and in their rebellion against God. He is challenging them to pour their worst out upon his head. Give me all you got. Bring all of it. Leave nothing in reserve. Lay it all out on the field. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. See, in a sense, Jesus is challenging them to bring in the full measure of their sinful and destructive capabilities upon him so that at the end of it, after they have exhausted themselves, he would rise up as the victor over them. Now We know the rest of the story. We know that that's exactly what they tried to do. They sought to pour a deadly thing out upon him from which he would not rise. They thought they had rid themselves of God and his anointed. And what did God do in heaven? He simply scoffs at them. He mocks them. You know, even today, beloved, when men try to overcome Christ, when they try to destroy him, to conquer him, to cast him off, Even today, they will not succeed. And believers, beloved, you need to to understand this and you need to take this to heart. No matter the efforts of a fallen and depraved world of mankind, no matter what efforts they take to overthrow Christ, to topple Him from His throne, to burst the bonds apart between God and His anointed and to cast His fetters off of them, No matter what they do, no matter what they attempt to do to accomplish that end, God simply sits in the heavens and laughs at them. He's laughing at them when he raises Christ up from the dead. He's mocking them when Christ ascends into glory and sits at the right hand of his Father. The Father continues to mock the enemies of His Son as He, even now at this moment, causes all of His enemies to become a footstool for His feet. Psalm 110, Hebrews chapter 1. That's what God's doing right now. And God will even mock them on the day of His beloved Son's return. Christian, you need to get this. 
You who are striving to hold fast and faithfulness to Christ in this dark land of sojourning, you need to understand that there is nothing that this world will do to Christ that will ever thwart His plans or cause His reign to come to an end. His is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is one that will never pass away. He is the one to whom God will submit every knee and every tongue. He swears you will swear allegiance to me in the name of my Son. It will happen. And you need to get that when you're being confronted by the darkness of this world and you're being tempted to despair. You need to take heart and be strengthened in your faith. The world has never conquered the Lord Jesus Christ and the world never will conquer the Lord Jesus Christ. The elitists with their grandiose Ideas of utopia. The regimes of totalitarianism that are on the rise. The modern day expressions of human supremacy modeled after the Tower of Babel itself. The great city of man, according to Augustine, the Babylon. No matter what they do, they will never conquer the Lamb. And they will never overthrow His rule. The greatest expressions of human vileness and hatred of God will never bring utter destruction upon the Lamb. Just imagine, if you will, for a moment, what it was like. I often think about this. What was it like for these Jews who were here confronting Jesus, who were here casting doubt upon him, who were subjecting Jesus to their own bar of judgment. I often imagine or try to imagine what it was like for them in their first moment of death. Realizing fully in that first moment of death that despite their greatest efforts to rid themselves of this Jesus of Nazareth, only to find in that moment they did not succeed. Matthew 26, 63 through 64, Jesus talks about the fact that when the high priest had laid him under oath to declare whether he was the Son of God or not, Jesus says, I am. And from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated on the clouds and reigning on the throne. Just imagine when Annas, the high priest, took his last breath and came face to face with this same Jesus that he condemned to death a number of years before. See, for a moment, it looked like Annas had the, higher, the upper hand. And Caiaphas and all the other Jewish elders and rulers in the Sanhedrin, it looked like they had prevailed. It looked like evil had won the day. And you know what? they continued on in that ignorance for decades. But at the end of it all, every single one of them stood before the Lamb whom they sentenced to death. And they realized this Lamb will not be conquered. His reign will never be thwarted. That's the greatness of the glory of what Jesus is declaring in John chapter 2, verse 19. 
You do your best to destroy this temple. Do everything you can, and I will still raise it up at the end. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's proof to each one of us in this room that we will never rid ourselves of Jesus or of his claims over us. The world can throw their best efforts in that endeavor. They can bring their most sophisticated arguments against him. They can take the full measure of human reason and try to place Jesus Christ on trial under the scrutiny of our own rationalism. And in the end, Christ will always be found as the one who has risen above it all. Therefore, you owe him your allegiance and he will have it. He will have it. And he will have it from the enemies of his people as well. So take heart, Christian. Second and final thing I want to mention about the significance of this sign, of Jesus being the temple resurrection sign, what this sign teaches us about the nature of Jesus. Number one, it not only teaches us that Jesus Christ is greater than our greatest efforts to destroy him, but secondly, it teaches us that Jesus' grace is greater than any of the sins that led to his destruction. Jesus' grace is greater than any of the sins that led to his destruction. Jesus says in John 2.19, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. The glory of the gospel is the fact that Jesus willingly allowed himself to be destroyed. John 10, he gives his life on behalf of his sheep. No one takes it from him. He lays it down of his own accord. Jesus willingly allowed himself to be destroyed. By the hands of men, yes. But far more significantly, by the hand of Almighty God, by, the own, by his Father's own hand, Jesus willfully allowed himself to experience destruction. Isaiah 53.10, right? Having placed the sins of his people upon the head of his servant, it says in Isaiah 53.10, it pleased Yahweh to crush him. Who made Jesus a sacrifice for sin? It was not men. It was God the Father who lifted up His own Son in the place of guilty sinners. It was God who provided this sacrifice to atone for sin. It was God who made a way to reconcile His enemies to Himself. It was God who demonstrated His own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's all God. It's all God's doing. Jesus willfully gave himself over to destruction under the hand of his Father. He willingly allowed himself to taste death for everyone. But he did that for a reason. He did that so that in his death and in his own destruction, the grace of God would reign unto eternal life for every sinner who put their faith in him. 
the sin that these religious leaders committed against Christ, this sin in destroying the new covenant temple, even that sin did not destroy the grace of God that was flowing to them through these means. The very Jerusalem sinners who put Christ to death, they are the ones whom God sent the message of hope and forgiveness in the gospel to first. This is John Bunyan's book. Jerusalem sinner saved. Hope for the vilest of sinner. Just the whole book is about Jesus magnifying His glory by bringing the hope and the message of the gospel first and foremost to those Jerusalem sinners who put Him to death. You see, the greatness of their sin against Jesus did not break the grace that He was extending to them. They poured out their best, their most vile treatments upon the head of the Son of God, and He still comes to them after His resurrection declaring the gospel of peace. Come, have peace with me. Come, have peace with me. We see that in Acts 2, 23-24. This man who was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you, the Jews, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men, and you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. And then you jump down to verses 38 and 39, and the Jews who are cut to the heart are asking Peter, what shall we do? We have sinned against the Lord this way. We have committed treasonous crimes against Yahweh and His Messiah. What are we supposed to do now? Peter says, repent. Repent, each one of you, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Pay, a special, pay special attention to that each one of you part. You don't think there were sinners there whom Peter was talking to who just weeks before were crying out for the Son of God to be crucified? And yet Peter says, each one of you there's hope of forgiveness for you. Each one of you, there's the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Now my point in going there is simply to illustrate the fact that the very sinners who sought to destroy Christ are the sinners that Jesus sends his apostles to in order to call them with the gospel of grace. And that means, that tells us that even the most spectacular sin that humanity has ever committed against God, the crucifixion of the Lord of glory, even the most spectacular sin, the greatest sin, the vilest sin, was not enough to undermine his purposes of grace for sinners like us. My friend, it's the same for you and me. Galatians 1, 6 says that God calls us to salvation not by calling us to clean up our lives. He doesn't call us to salvation in Christ by calling us to get our act together, to turn over a new leaf, to try harder, to be a better person. Come on, man, get your stuff together. Be better. That's not the call of the gospel. God calls us to salvation by the message of His grace. 
That's the call of the gospel. In unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor, God freely extends grace to us at the cost of his own beloved son. This morning in prayer meeting, Grant brought up one of the memory verses from today, John 6, 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. You know, the context there is the Jews asking, what works do we need to be doing in order to do the works of God? Jesus says, this is the work of God. That you believe in the one whom he sent. That's the work of God. That's what's required. That's all that's necessary. Believe in the one whom he sent. And you will be saved. Beloved, if you're ever going to see the greatness of Christ's love for you and the sure, confident hope that belongs to you who trust in him, if you're ever going to grasp that, then you not only need to recognize that Jesus freely gave himself over to destruction for your sake. We're good at acknowledging that reality. Jesus gave himself up to death for sinners just like me. But you also need to grasp that it does not matter what sin you have committed against God, what law you have broken, whatever ways you have despised and rejected and spurned His holiness, whatever that sin is, no matter what it is, it is not greater than the grace of Christ. Because that sin is not greater than the blood of Christ. He offered Himself up by the eternal Spirit, He covered an eternal debt for all of his people. And your sin, your puny little sin, no matter how big or how great you think it is or how big the devil makes you think it is, your puny little sin will never overcome the blood of Jesus. So stop acting like it. There's freedom in the gospel. There's joy in the gospel. There's the love of God in the gospel. And how the devil wants to keep us from seeing it. Your sin cannot conquer Christ. So no matter what sin it is, it will never outweigh his love or destroy his grace for you. If through repentance and faith, you will receive it. That's the call of the gospel. Repent of your sins and come to Jesus and you will receive his sure grace. May you hear that call today, both believer and unbeliever. And may you come to this new covenant temple and find fellowship with your God in Him. Would you pray with me? Lord, it truly is grace that we need to see more fully. Grace greater than all of our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the grace that's revealed in that statement. Destroy this temple. I will raise it up. I thank you, Lord, for the great work that you're doing in this world. I thank you for every one of us who have come to meet God in the new covenant temple, coming to Jesus, finding by faith the Spirit of God, enlightening our eyes, helping us know all the hope that is ours through the gospel. Lord Jesus, thank you. And I pray you'd continue building up your temple. 
Continue to gather in sinners. Continue to encourage your saints. And help us live lives that are truly devoted and directed to the glory of your name. The glory of this temple. God, we ask this and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen. May you go in that grace.